0: So we're going to we're continuing in our series on worship. If you want to join along, you can uh turn to Psalm 100. That's where we're going to be where we're going to be this morning. Uh we're going to like just do three verses. So if it seems like I'm going really slow, don't get nervous. I'm not going to keep you all day. We're just getting through three verses, but we are going to dig in and uh and really um uh, kind of pull some meat out uh from Psalm 100. Um so yeah, you can join along if you would like to see what we're reading. So uh, last night, I think uh, my phone says it got down to 13 degrees. Anybody get a lower reading than that? Is 13 the lowest? Okay. Let's assume that it was 3 a.m. when it hit 13 degrees. And uh, let's say that by some chance, like me, you woke up at 3 a.m. Uh, I don't like waking up at 3, but sometimes I do. But let's say you woke up at 3 a.m. and you were feeling frisky and you decided to go out and go for a walk. Okay, 13 degrees outside. So here's what you do. You get out of bed and you kind of, if, you, if you've got family, spouse, you kind of tiptoe, you don't wake anybody up. And so you go uh, to your dresser and then you grab, um, you grab your tank top and you put your tank top on. And then you go to your drawer and you grab uh, your Bermuda shorts. Anybody remember Bermuda shorts? They were cool. Nobody does. All right, they were shorts, right? You're in a tank top, you got shorts, and then you put it on your flip flops, Because you want to go outside, and then you do, right? You got your flippies, you got your shorts, you got your tank top, and then you go outside because you can't sleep just to enjoy the great outdoors. Okay, as soon as you walk out that door, remember I said it's 13 degrees, right? As soon as you walk out that door, it's going to register that maybe your clothing decision is out of alignment with reality, Maybe. It's going to hit you real quick. 13 degrees will punch you in the face real fast. But then here's what I know to be true. If you were to linger outside for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes to an hour, um, if it didn't hit you when you first stepped outside, stepped outside of the door, you will be keenly aware 30 minutes in that you are out of alignment regarding your clothing choice and the weather or the climate that you have stepped into. And after a period of time of you being outside in your flip-flop shorts and tank top, um, there, your response to, su- to such circumstances will be, we're going to use some biblical words here, would be groaning. Groaning would come first. And then secondly, at some point, would come what we'll call gnashing of teeth. Like, woe is me. I'm an idiot. What am I doing? In 13 degree weather, in summer attire. Alignment is a powerful and necessary thing for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around. Because when we're out of alignment, bad things can happen. Just this weekend, I heard a group of people who um, had a retreat and they did what's called the polar plunge, where they all decided to you know, get down into their summer swimsuit and then jump into uh, a frozen lake that they cut the ice out of, but you just jump in the water and hang out for two seconds because you realize you're being a moron for jumping in the water that's that cold, right? Because you're out of alignment. It's uncomfortable to not be properly clothed for the situation that you're stepping into, right? And the reason why we do the polar plunge is probably because there's a hot tub right there and we hop in and we make life miserable for, for two seconds and we hop in the hot tub and everything's okay again, right? That's why that's fun. But when we're out of alignment, things can get really, really bad. Right, so this morning, uh, here's what I want us to see. When we are aligned with the Lord, our lives, our thoughts, our behaviors, our, all the things, when we are aligned with the Lord, worship is going to be the result. When we align with Him, worship then comes out of us. When we're properly aligned with Him, worship and good things come. When we are misaligned with Him, um, worship and good things do not erupt out. All right, let's dig in. Psalm 100, starting in verse 1. All right, this is, this is a worship song that the, the Hebrews would sing to the Lord. And here's the first line of this worship song. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, everything. All creation, all the face of the earth, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Right? In literature, there's this device, it's called personification. Right? I'll take you back to fourth grade for a second. Personification is when you take an inanimate object and you give it human-like characteristics, right? It would be like taking a rock or taking a tree or taking a deer and ascribing to that for literary purposes, giving it human-like tendencies and abilities, right? Like if anybody has, uh, what's, what's the story Bambi? Like Bambi is per, is given personification skills. Bambi is elevated to be more human-like, right? In the story personification. Um, One could read this and think that maybe the psalmist is personifying the earth by saying to the earth, inanimate object, right, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It could be personification. I don't think it is. I don't think that's where the psalmist is going here. I think what the psalmist is doing is more so speaking about alignment, alignment, right? Let's let's dig in here. Um, remember in Luke 19 when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem a week before he goes to the cross and then the grave and the resurrection. In the triumphal entry, um, Jesus comes in, and uh, the people on either side of the road that he is um, coming into Jerusalem on, they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna! They're praising him. They're ascribing to him like what is akin to to worship. And as Jesus is walking down the road and people are taking their palm fronds and they're waving them and they're putting them on the ground, this worshipful scene, the religious leaders of the day show up in that very scene and they're not happy. And what they do is they say, Jesus, you, ha- you need to stop your followers from worshiping you. This is inappropriate. They ought not be like lifting you in this capacity right? And they say, Jesus, rebuke them, tell them to stop. And then Jesus has this, um, like this amazing response. He says, right? Um, Hey guys, if these people here stop worshiping me right now, if they stop proclaiming me and my goodness and lifting me, then the rocks that you see, they will actually start to cry out in their place. Is Jesus personifying the rocks and giving them human-like ability and tendencies? I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think that Jesus is talking about alignment. And what Jesus is saying is, hey guys, religious leaders who want this worship scene to stop, hit the stop button. Jesus is saying, what these people are doing is right and good They are aligned with the purposes of God right now, and they're doing the absolute appropriate thing, right? 100% they're in line with what the Lord is doing, right? And and then by way of implication on the other side, Jesus would then be saying, but you religious leaders who are not able to enter into worship who are like actually trying to shut this thing down, what you were revealing is, is that you are out of alignment with what God is doing on the scene right now. And, and here's kind of like the weird behind the back, like criticism for them. Religious leaders, you are out of alignment with what God is doing, but the rocks that you see, the inanimate structure that is a rock geologist you could help us understand what that is right but the rocks on the scene are more aligned with what god is doing here than you are that's that's a criticism for the religious leaders who are trying to shut this thing down even the rocks are aligned with the purposes of the lord more so than some people that are there Now, I don't want us to rush past this. We're going to actually take a couple steps deeper in this, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Not just personification here. We're talking about alignment. And the alignment goes deeper than any of us actually, I think, can comprehend. Let's go back to Genesis 1, talking about all of the earth and alignment and the Lord. All right? Genesis chapter 1, God is the good creator, and on a series of six days, he is speaking instructions out into the void. And when God speaks, right, then creation itself starts listening to him immediately and then doing what he says now with 100% obedience. Right? So day one, God speaks and creation listens, says, let there be light. And bam! Creation responds by giving light. Right? And then day two, God speaks and creation, bam, responds rightly, 100% in obedience, and does what God says. And then all the way, it's the same pattern. God is speaking and creation is obeying. And by the time we get to the end of day six, when creation is finished, we get a report about how all of this that God has spoken into existence, how all of it appears and seems, how it all is. It's report card. Genesis chapter 1. Here's what the report card says. That creation itself is, quote, very good. Wow, it is, wow, look what you did, God. This is so Awesome. Right? And so uh, rightly ascribing praise to God, but the only reason we can look around and say this is fantastic is because at this moment all of creation is aligning itself under who God is and what he's saying. There's no debate. There's no pushbacks. There's no, I know God, you said to do this, but I'm going to do it this way. No, creation is just right, aligning with its creator. And then the result is we have to catch this. The result is things are very, very, very good. Right. One of my, my favorite farmer of all time. He's a farmer in Virginia. His name's Joel Salatin. In an interview that he did, somebody asked him, they said, Joel, um, what's, what's your favorite part of being a farmer? Here's his response. He says, my favorite part of being a farmer is this quote, it's the sheer ecstasy of life. End quote. Right, His favorite part of being a farmer is the, quote, sheer ecstasy of life. Now, I don't know if we all know how to interpret what he's saying, but I know Joel. I've listened and read a lot of him. Here's what Joel means when he says, The greatest thing about being a farmer is the sheer ecstasy of life. Here's my interpretation of what he's saying. As a farmer, he has the privilege of stepping into creation and stewarding his specific plot of land in a manner that is in keeping with his creator, his father, his savior's purposes. And in honoring in aligning himself with how God does things, here's what Joel Salatin would say to flesh this out that at some point, under good stewardship, that's aligning with the purposes of God, an ecosystem comes alive. Like, not just, like, eking by, like, barely grabbing a hold to some semblance of a pulse, but, like, full-on, like, thriving, pulsing, alive aliveness, right? Like, when an ecosystem is like in harmonious unity with all of its parts, meaning that all the plants and the animals are like in a synthesis and the water is in its water place doing its water thing. And when the soil has come alive and all the microorganisms are doing what they're supposed to do, and when fungi are populating all over the place and networking the roots of plants in with each other so that they can share resources, it is a miraculous wonder when creation does what god made it to do when you can steward over that and it 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 turns into over time sheer ecstatic life or as toby Hemingway, one another author that i've read put it like this that at some point when a gardener is doing their thing in a plot of ground and after like a time when they've stewarded it well it might be three years it might be four it might be five but at some point in there he says the garden will pop and what he means is that it comes alive in a more fully-orbed way than any other part of creation because, and Toby Hemingway wouldn't say it this way, but because it's become aligned with its design principles. It's very good. So let, 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 let's go here. So at the point of the story where we find ourselves, there's two simultaneous things that happen and are happening in creation. Number one, um, the creation itself is ecstatic and eager to align itself with its creator because even the rocks know that it's very good to be under his wise stewardship and to align itself with him. Here's the second thing that is also true regarding creation. Creation is groaning. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. The reason why creation is also simultaneously groaning is because we human beings who were called to bear the image of God as rulers over creation, we introduced sin and deviation from the creator into the fiber of creation itself. And there's a misalignment that we have brought into the world. And where there's misalignment, creation says, No, that's not right. I don't like it that way. Right, And there's earthquakes, and there's hurricanes, and there's droughts, and there's floods, and there's all manner of things that God didn't design into the system, but because we've misaligned it with our sin introduction into the world, its creation itself is groaning, and it is unhappy at the places where it has been misaligned to its creator. Now the point of all this is not, this is not an environmentalism sermon. Right, If you think I'm going there and you're checked out, stop. I'm just going to the place that the psalmist is going in Psalm 100 verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. He hasn't talked to people yet. He's just talking about creation and a joyful noise. But the point is this. That when anything that God has made aligns itself with Him... The result is so good. It's very good. Life gets ecstatically good, fully alive. But on the flip side, when anything that God has made, and there is nothing that is made that God has not made, I'm talking all things here, anything that God has made that does not align itself with Him, the result will be groaning, and gnashing of teeth, depending upon how far we go, how much we double down on our stepping out of alignment with him and who he is and what he's doing. It is about alignment and creation itself. In whatever ways rocks and trees and groundhogs are able to appreciate their creator, creation appreciates him and wants to align with him. Right? We can learn from creation itself. So, the psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Then verse, uh, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now he's starting to talk to human beings. right? Now he's starting to like, get into his core audience here, and that would be you, and that would be me. But I want us to focus in, I said we were going to go slow, we're not making it very far this morning, we're going to linger here, I want us to uh, key in on the first word here of verse 2, serve, serve the Lord with gladness. The word serve is a Hebrew word, and it's uh, in Hebrew it's uh, the word avad, avad. Uh, avad is what we're going to, we'll call it a fascinating word. It's fascinating in its complexity. Right there are some words that are very clear and simple and straight through the front door. They only mean one thing. Very simple to translate. There are other words in our language and in others, we're talking Hebrew here, that have more complicated and more complex meanings. And you have to understand the nuances to understand like what, what version of it are we using here? Because it's it's translated in a variety of ways for good reason, because it's a complicated, deep resonating word avad is one of those deep complicated words right here's here's what it means in a nutshell and you're going to see the difference in um, in these things as i describe them right the first meaning is avad is to work to work right you're going to work nine to five whatever you do avad work another meaning of avad is to serve right to be a servant under someone another meaning is to worship Worship, and work, and serve. How did the Hebrews get one word that meant, those are different things. What kind of language is that? Work, serve, worship, avad, one word. Such a wide range of meanings. Can I tell you why I think it has such a wide range of meanings? I'm going to either way, so let's align. Can we align here? Can we just go there? Um and it, this isn't just me coming up with this. Like I've read deeply on this. Old Testament theologians, I'm going to summarize and make it succinct. Genesis chapter two, verse fifteen is the first time we see the word Avad. Serve. Work, right? Worship in the Bible. And it's in the garden when um, Adam and Eve are given the call to Serve the garden and then shamar the garden. Two different words, but we're just talking about a vod. They're in the garden and they're given the call to serve or work or worship in the garden of Eden. And so let's break that down. What does that mean for Adam and Eve? And then it'll make sense for us in a second. Um, well, it, it meant that for Adam and Eve, like when they woke up in the morning, like their, their job that they would go off to is in the garden of Eden. They are literally growing food that they're going to eat. They are planting gardens. They are harvesting food. They are tending and pruning fruit trees. They're putting in a grape arbor. They are building their house, right? At some point, they're going to start schooling kids. Like, what, like All the things that we do for work when we wake up in the morning and we go to work and then before we come home, like all those work things, Adam and Eve are doing those things in the garden, right? So avod means work, right? Of course. But it means more than that, right? Because here's why, Genesis 2.15, the Garden of Eden is not just their vocational destination. It's not just where they do their nine to five so they can pay the bills, so they can have sustenance and place to live and eat. The garden of Eden is more than that it is also the first temple of the Lord on earth. The garden of We've talked about this I don't have time to dig into it at length. Well, we've talked about this but the garden of Eden is the place where God is dwelling with people and all the elements of temple are there if you have eyes to see it and and Adam and Eve in the garden temple are tending to that temple as priest and priestess as rulers over it, under the great wise ruler of all, but they are doing what we would call ministry work in the garden as well. So let me break it down, just like this, in our vernacular. Adam and Eve, as avaders, as those avading in the Garden of Eden, they are doing their nine-to-five job, their work, and they are doing ministry before the Lord, Ministry, and it's happening simultaneously. Meaning it's not like Adam spends the first four hours of his day growing food and working on his house and then he goes for the next four hours and does ministry before the Lord. No, like everything that he's doing in the garden and with his house, all the things that he's doing like as society would progress and build over time, all of those things are ministry before the Lord. Because it's... All of Eden is his temple. Whatever you do in the temple is work, and it is service to the Lord. It's all, it's all worship. All of it, as uh, theologians would say it this way today: that in God's world, and what isn't God's world? In God's world, or way of seeing things, which is the way of seeing things, there is no division between the sacred and the secular. There's no division between what I do for the Lord and then what I do for myself or for people. Right? It's, it's all work, service before the Lord, and worship. All of it. Right? And in case you're not believing me at this point, you're like, I've never heard that before, I think he's making it up. Okay? Just test me on this. Um, Genesis chapter one, clearly a temple scene. Right? And God said, Reproduce Adam and Eve, multiply, fill the whole earth. So God's design is that all of creation would become a what? A place where God dwells with people. It's a temple. It says design from the beginning. And what do we see in the end of Revelation? We see the fulfillment of the story. That all of creation is a temple unto the Lord where we are serving as priests in His temple. Doing what? Working and serving and worshiping. What's work and what's service and what's worship? No, it's all the same! Meaning this, again, in case this isn't making any sense, I'm just gonna bottom line it right here. If you are a plumber and you're waking up tomorrow at 7 a.m. and your first call is at 7.30, when you show up on the scene and you are fixing that first pipe, sorry, I don't know much about plumbing, I'm just being real simplistic here. When you're fixing that first plumbing issue, what are you doing? From God's perspective, not from the world's perspective, from God's perspective. What are you doing? Here's what you're doing. You're working. You're doing your nine to five. You're paying the bills and you're advancing society by keeping plumbing working. That's good. But you're not just working your nine to five. You are also serving under the Lord in his temple, in his world. You are working. You are serving him and Avad. You are worshiping him. They are not separated in the way that we think they're separate. It's all the same. That's why vod is a complicated word all through the Old Testament because it means so many things. Because in Genesis 2.15, it meant so many things. Verse 3. Psalmist says this Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Anybody study sociology and power dynamics? Just to be clear here from that verse, who's in control? I'll just read it again. Power Dynamics. Know that the Lord, He's God. Not, not you and me. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Right. The order of things could not be any clearer. In the New Testament, right, this, this theme of biblical truth like, continues all the way through the story, but we would see Paul in the New Testament referring to himself as a bond servant of Jesus. An incredibly aligned and accurate view of himself with a deep understanding of Psalm 100, verse 3, as well as Genesis 1 and 2, but for sure, Psalm 100, verse 3. Paul says, I am a bond servant or a slave of of Jesus. John in Revelation 1. I just read it this week. Reading through Revelation just for fun. John said as John uses the word bondservants of Jesus, slaves of Jesus. A bondservant in the New Testament here it is, it's someone who is bound in service to another or a slave. A slave. And Paul and John are rejoicing in self-identifying as slaves of Jesus. Now, normally, we reject this kind of identity, do we not? Who would say proudly, I am a bondservant, I am a slave. None of us would rightly want to hold that identity or to put that on ourselves, and here's why. Why? Because we understand what it is like because of our nation's unique history and the broken history of the world, we understand through accounts of others who have been there what it is like to be a slave underneath and owned by a fallen, broken human being in a fallen and broken world. And it's ugly. It's nasty. It's dysfunctional. And that kind of slavery being owned by another person who is a sinful, broken person, we reject that in all of its forms and we mourn and we lament that in all of its historical examples, right? Especially like Black History Month, we have to recognize this. Our nation's history is filled with slavery and it is nasty and it is ugly because it's broken human beings doing that to other human beings but slavery or bond service of a person to god is another thing altogether it is so different it's a shame that we have to use the same terminology because it, they're like in different they're in different dimensional realities there is nothing about them that is like other than one person is like in the bound service of another everything else about it is absolutely different totally utterly different right cuz here's the deal whatever or whoever aligns themselves as bond servants of the lord and aligns themselves with him and who he is and what he's doing right what we will do is we will then in so doing those things we will make joyful noises Not talking groanings or gnashing of teeth here. Oh, I'm a slave of Jesus and life is horrible. Gnash teeth. No! When we align with Him in this way, a joyful noise will be the eruption that comes out of our mouths and out of our hearts. We will, right, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. That's us included. Right? We will serve as bondservant slaves. We will serve the Lord with gladness, very goodness, sheer ecstatic liveliness. That's what it's like to be his slave. And that's why in verse two, then the psalmist says, Come into his presence, bondservant slaves. Come closer, come closer to him with singing. Not mournful dirges, woe is me, I'm a slave of the great king. No, it's sing come before him with joyful singing. Right, the scriptures are so clear. It is such an honor to be a bond servant of the Lord. Right? It is an identity of honor and Privilege that is bestowed on his favored ones. Because God is so good and God is so for us. Anything from the rocks to the trees to the deer to the clouds to the people, whatever aligns itself with him knows and can give testimony. It is very good. Oh, it's so good. And that's what he calls us into. Now, I want to give one Old Testament example that I think will highlight everything that we've talked about just in case we forget everything that I've already said, which is very possible, right? And the story that I want to direct our attention to that is the personification of all of this on both sides is the story of Jonah. And I want to use this story because I think we're all familiar with it, I think, for the most part. Maybe as kids we heard it. I don't have to dig deep in reading and reciting it. I'm just going to tell you the story and how it fits through this lens of alignment with the Lord to joy and singing and gladness and against Him to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? Alignment. It's a big deal. Right. So Jonah. Jonah's a prophet of the Lord. He is a prophet to God's people, Israel. And then God gives Jonah an assignment. He says, Jonah, I've got this city over here that I know of very intimately. It's Nineveh. And I want you to go preach my words to them. Because my words bring life. So go and I'm going to, I have a message for you. Go to Nineveh. Right Now, the problem is is that Jonah and every other Israelite hated the Ninevites. They were a rising empire of the day the The Hebrews were afraid of them. they didn't want to serve them nor see their civilization grow or continue. They actually wanted to see them go away right god 's people wanted them to go away. God wanted them to step into very good gladness and singing and serving. God's heart was for Nineveh. Jonah and the rest of the Israelites were oppositional to the Ninevites. But God says, Jonah, go. Now here's what a bond servant slave would do. All right, God, I'm, I'm going. I'm yours. I'm going to align myself with your purposes. I'm going to Nineveh because you said so. Let's do this. I don't see how it's going to be joyful. I'm not glad yet, but I trust you that as I align with you, that the very good is the result. That's what a bondservant slave would do. It's not what Jonah did. Jonah said, God, you want me to go this way to Nineveh to preach your words to them? I hate them. I'm actually going this way. And he went to a local port, and he books passage for a place as far as he can get, as far as a ship will take him, from Nineveh, right? Going the opposite direction. That's the story, and that's its setup. So what happens as Jonah steps out of alignment with the Lord? Well, I'm just going to recount for you what happens in the story. In the story, then, we find very soon creation itself in upheaval, creation and upheaval in Jonah. What do you mean? Well, here's the deal. They're on a boat heading across the Mediterranean in the opposite direction of where alignment with the Lord should take him and then this storm erupts on the scene. But it's not an average, normal, like creation's groaning kind of a storm. It's more than that because these sailors know that it's more than that. This is like, there's some like supernatural heaped on elements here that makes this storm especially groaning and gnashing of teeth, right? This is next level, not good creation and upheaval kind of storm. So that, that is erupting on the scene early in Jonah, creation itself in upheaval. And then we have people, meaning everyone on the boat, is in dire chaos. All the sailors are freaking out. They're throwing all their cargo over. They're like at their wits end. They're scared. Their teeth are chattering, I don't know if sailors have chattering teeth, I don't know, but they're in freak out mode because creation's in upheaval, people are at the end of themselves. And then Jonah himself, Jonah then finds himself as one of the members of the ship in the storm, he also is at peril. At first, Jonah has a mediator between him and the storm in the ship, but as you misalign with the Lord, things go from bad to worse to worser. And so then Jonah now is thrown out of the ship, no longer has a mediator between him and the storm. Not that the ship was going to last long, but then Jonah finds himself swimming or attempting to swim in these massive swells in this furious storm because he is out of alignment with the one whom he should be aligning with. But it gets worse. Then this, like fish, this giant massive sea creature comes and swallows him. When we walk away from the Lord, when we stop serving him as a bond servant, notice that in this portion in the book of Jonah, there are no joyful noises being made. There is no... Gladness, in service, and there is no singing. Zero, zero amounts of those things at that stage of the Jonah story. Instead, in absolute contrast to those things, here's what we do see. We see Jonah in the belly of a great fish. And you talk about being in a dark place right? If you're, in a, if you're in a great sea creature and there's like two and a half, three feet between you and anything on the outside, that's darkness. You take that sea, same sea creature and take you down into the depths of the sea, that's like dark, dark, darkness. That's dark. In addition to the darkness, Jonah is utterly alone. There is no one there. He is in complete isolation by himself. That is not what God made for us. And that is not good for Jonah. But that's where he is as he steps out of alignment. He's in darkness, utterly alone. He is pressed in on all sides. Anybody here claustrophobic? I got a little bit of claustrophobic tendency, so I'm not going to go too deep here with this. I don't want to freak myself out. But like imagine you're in the belly of a great fish. It's not a huge belly. Like you're, you're pretty tightly snugged in there. Right you're like, uh, like immovable, you're in the creature's stomach, but there ain't no movement in there. Dark alone, unable to move. And then just, I want to point this out, just for the sake of like highlighting misalignment with the Lord, then in the stomach like, what's a stomach of a great sea creature designed by God to do? It's designed to digest things. So for three days, Jonah is in a dark, lonely, confined, can't move space, and there are stomach acids permeating all over and around him. He, his very body is being corroded and broken down. His skin is burning. Now that's a different kind of slavery than the one that the Lord is speaking of, Paul and John. In the psalmist you're talking about, there's, there's some slavery going on. There's some confinement here. There's some limitations here that Jonah is experiencing over time misalignment. But when we serve the Lord, there is light. There is not this impenetrable darkness, but there is this radiant light. Jonah, come on into the light, brother. Come, right? In, in service to the Lord, there are other people there. Jonah, you're by yourself. Come on out. Align yourself again with the Lord. And then we'll, we'll get you around a community of people that you can grow with and walk with and enjoy. Because that's what you were made for. And then in service to the Lord, there's freedom on all sides. Jonah, you need not be getting crushed by the stomach muscles of the fish, unable to move anymore. Let us, let us step on out and align with the Lord and experience what true freedom is. Come on, Jonah. Jonah, the invitation to worship is there. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Align with him. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with Singing. What an invitation for Jonah and for all of us. Worship team, come on back up. We're going to sing. And I just want to make one final point. And I, I have to make this point um, because we're Americans and we live in American culture. So when I say that when we align ourselves, with the Lord, that very good, ecstatic kind of life is the result. I just want to be very clear here. As Americans, what we sometimes hear is, if I enter into a bargain kind of agreement with God and like serve him-ish, whatever that looks like, then he'll give me all the circumstances that I want him to give me. I'll get the job and the house and the car and the things and the health and the whatever. So I'll get all of it. I serve God, he gives me the things that I want. Oh, no, it's not that's not what's going on here. That's not what alignment with the Lord necessarily produces. Right? Cuz Paul who would call himself a slave of Jesus is in literal prison often. He's in human confines, a slave, prisoner. But what is Paul doing in the circumstantial context of prison? Oh he is worshiping the Lord he is serving with gladness he is in the presence singing a joyful noise John as he's writing the book of revelation is on in exile the the roman oppressors have moved him to a place of imprisonment as well and what is John doing well praise the lord he's in alignment with him and he is singing joyful Songs. He is serving the Lord with gladness. He is coming into the presence of the Lord with singing. No, circumstances aren't going to be what we think we want them to be regularly and often. But that's not what alignment with the Lord is about. He'll tell us what very good is, but just know it's very good. That's the invitation that we've been given to be worshipers. Worship only comes from those who are aligned with him. So now we're going to sing. I'm going to pray for us. And as always, just invitation to move about the cabin, right? There's freedom here. You're not confined to your chair, although you can stay in your chair if you want to. If you want to go pray for somebody, please do. If you feel like you want to come up and have somebody pray over you, we'd love to do that. It's our honor to pray over one another, uh, but just know that you have the freedom to do that. Let's stick our attention, let's place our attention on Him and allow Him to align our hearts to His. Father in Heaven, thank you for being so very, very good. You are so good that everything you touch that honors and obeys and aligns with you becomes very, very, very good. And we want to be your people. You are God. We are yours. We are the sheep of your pasture. This is your world. And we are so honored to be your bond servants in it. And Father, now I pray that we would do what naturally and normally comes out of those who are aligned with you. As we attend to you and put our attention on you. We want to sing over you with gladness and lift you. You were already lifted, but we want to ascribe to you the place and the stature that we know you to have. And we want to celebrate you because you're good. Thanks for loving us so well. It's in the name of the crucified, buried and risen King Jesus that we can pray because of your grace that covers us. Amen.